power of books to transform the minds and personalities of their readers can give cause for anxiety as well as for celebration. A cluster of related developments in late medieval Europe brought heightened concern about what people were reading. The spread of literacy and the rise of a far wider reading public, lay as well as clerical, brought greater demand for written material. The availability of paper, a medium far less costly than parchment, made books more readily accessible than they had previously been, and allowed for more abundant supply of reading matter to feed this demand, even before the invention of printing with movable type. And the emergence of silent reading habits made reading a more private activity. One historians have attended to the impact of these developments on medieval heresy, on churchmen's fear that literacy contributed to the diffusion of heretical views, and on the efforts at censorship that ensued. But less work has been done on the dissemination of magical texts, which in some ways represented an even more sinister threat to orthodox culture, and on attempts to control these texts. To a book of magic which deliberately and expressly invited contact with demons presented all the hazards of reading in their deepest and most pressing form. Beginning around the early 14th century, possession and use of magical writings becomes a recurrent theme in the records of prosecution. When Bernard Delisha was accused in 1319 of having used necromancy against the Pope, he was cleared of that charge but nevertheless condemned to prison for merely possessing a book of necromancy. Three fear of necromancy and of necromantic writings was becoming an obsession at the time, especially at the court of Pope John XXII, who in the previous year had commissioned the Bishop of Frigius and others to investigate a group of clerics and laymen charged with using books of necromancy, geomancy and other magical arts. For in 1320 Matteo and Galizo Visconti were tried for 4. Using necromancy against Pope John, the offence here was actual use of the art, yet when one witness said he had been shown a book filled with experiments for love, hatred, finding of stolen objects and so forth, the very sight of such a book was evidently cause for horror. 5. In 1406-7, informants claimed that a group of clerics had used formulas from magical books against Benedict XIII and the King of France, and the ensuing inquiry uncovered a box filled with booklets containing prayers, hymns and conjurations. 6. But in 1409, at the Council of Pisa, Benedict in turn was charged with using necromancy and hiring necromancers. The Pope, it was said, had sought out a book of necromancy available only from the Saracens and had purchased it for some 1,000 francs. A book of necromancy was allegedly found under the pontiff's bed. Seven in such cases the uncovering of necromantic writings made more plausible the charge that necromancy had actually been used, but more fundamentally the books themselves would have impressed contemporaries as unsavory and incriminating, somewhat as the discovery of satanic paraphernalia might seem incriminating today. Not surprisingly, inquisitors and other judges used such discoveries as propaganda in their zealous campaigns against magic. In 1382 an inquisitor wrote to the government of Siena about a band of magicians at Rugo Magno, one Agnolo di Corso had been found in possession of a book of 70 chapters, which others had copied, and which spoke of invoking evil spirits to murder people or constrain their affections. Eight two years later Niccolo Consigli was executed at Florence for practicing necromancy and unlicensed exorcisms, his judges confiscated and burned the books of necromancy from which he had taken conjurations. 9 One might even say it was common for books of magic to be set forth as co-defendants alongside their owners and users, and indeed, as we shall see, those who condemned. Books of magic in some ways ascribed to them a kind of personality. 10 When, 
The books were burned, there were those, as we shall see, who heard the voices of demons in the crackling of the flames. The book burning might at times be voluntary, according to a 15th century biographer, Gerard Groot studied magic in his youth, and was accused of practicing it as well, but when he converted to a life of piety and forswore the art of necromancy, he consigned his books of magic to the flames. 11 The movement he went on to found, the Devotio Moderna, was one of the most influential forces in the devotional culture of pre-Reformation Europe, a movement of inner piety nurtured by devout reading. Reading, manifested in the copying out of pious phrases in personal florilegia, and financially supported by the copying of manuscripts, a movement, in short, firmly grounded in the book culture of late medieval Europe, and initiated with an act of penitential book burning. From the early years of Christianity, conversion to Christ had meant, among other things, doing away with books of magic. The scene at Ephesus, as described in the Acts of the Apostles, perhaps epitomized what happened on a smaller scale elsewhere. When Paul arrived in the town and made converts to the new faith, a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. By the later Middle Ages, treatment of those found with offending literature was often more judicial than pastoral. To be sure, a monk of Sulby Monastery was treated leniently when he was found possessing books of magic in 1500. A superior in the Premonstratensian order had heard of a brother named Thomas had been using books of experiments and gone about paying people generously to teach him the occult arts. Faced with the evidence, one of his books of experiments, he insisted that he owned such books only out of curiosity, not for actual use. The matter was treated as a disciplinary one within the monastic setting, and the brother received a light penance. 13 But in an age when books of this sort were held in deep suspicion one could never count on such clemency, as Bernard Delisha well knew. Anything that arouses such deep anxiety is a subject of historical interest, and books of magic hold considerable fascination indeed. To know why books of magic aroused fear we must gain a fuller understanding of what the books themselves were likely to contain. Most of them no doubt have perished in the Inquisitor's flames, but some eluded detection and have survived. The focus of following chapters in this study is arguably among the most interesting sources we have for the study of medieval magic, a 15th century handbook of explicitly demonic magic, or what contemporaries called necromancy. This compilation is contained in a manuscript in the Bavarian State Library in Munich. To be sure, the text is neither edifying nor profound, nor is it particularly original, in late medieval Europe there were no doubt many compilations equally illustrative of common magical practice, most of them now lost. But among the manuscripts that survive, few are quite as diverse in content, or as full, explicit and candid in their instructions as this work. Detailed examination of such a compilation may most obviously help us understand the mentality of the necromancers themselves who copied such books, whether for curiosity or for use. But study of this handbook may clarify several other factors in the history of magic, and three in particular. First, examination of a necromancer's manual sheds light on the function and cultural significance of a magical book itself. We will know more about the cultural significance of books generally, and we will know more fully the range of meanings a book could have, when we have grasped the role of this exceptional category of books. Second, the mentality of the necromancer's opponents becomes clearer from examination of such a compilation. The views of the Renaissance mags, such as Marsilio Ficino and Johannes Reuchlin, who insisted that they practiced a higher and purer 
form of magic than did these base necromancers, and those of the demonologists, Heinrich Kramer and his successors, for whom necromancy was a dark filter shading their perception of witchcraft. The reactions of the opponents may be historically more important than the attitudes of the necromancers themselves, because they tell us more about the culture as a whole, but we cannot begin to comprehend these reactions without knowing the realities on which they were based. Third, the rites contained in this compendium illustrate strikingly the links between magical practice and orthodox liturgy. The analogy I will use is that of a tapestry, whose display side implies a reverse side, so too, a society that ascribes a high degree of power to ritual and its users will invite the development of unofficial and transgressive ritual, related in form to its official counterpart, however sharply it may differ in its uses. Uses. A book of magic as a cultural artifact. A book of magic is also a magical book. It not only tells how to perform magical works, but shares in the numinous qualities and powers of the rites it contains. To be sure, not all magic is book magic, much magical practice arises from oral culture, is transmitted orally, and is used without needing inscription on paper or parchment, even if it is the largely accidental circumstance of its having been transcribed at some point that accounts for its survival and its accessibility to us. But in the later Middle Ages certain, forms of magic were increasingly assimilated to liturgy and increasingly written, so that a magical act was the performance from a script, or the observance of a rite whose details were enshrined in a text. This development surely owed much to the spread of literacy among the laity, but even more to the practice of magic among the clergy, particularly those on the fringes of the clerical elite. Judicial and anecdotal evidence suggests that explicitly demonic magic, called nigromancy or necromancy, 14 was largely the domain of priests, perhaps especially those without full-time parish employment, as well as ordained monks with some education and esoteric interests, university students and others who had been received into minor orders. 15 It was within this context that a book of magic would most naturally be perceived as a magical book, sharing in the numinous quality of the rites it prescribes. Christian ritual had from early centuries been the enactment not of oral tradition but of texts embodied in books. With the unprecedented late medieval diffusion of literacy, availability of reading matter and expansion of the clergy, books might still be accessible only to an elite, but it was a much expanded elite, and the numbers and varieties of books available were far greater than in previous centuries, so that maintaining control over this diffusion and this variety was scarcely possible, however much hierarchs may have attempted to censor the available reading matter. Little surprise, then, if books of magic found their way onto some readers' shelves, whether for use or for mere curiosity. Apart from its function as a repository of information and insight, a book can be of interest as a physical object, as a mirror of its writer's life and mind, and as a mirror of the society and culture from which it emanates and to which it returns. The surviving books of medieval demonic magic repay. Study from each of these perspectives, although their claims to significance differ from those of ordinary texts, a book of magic is a physical object like any other book, but even as object it is perceived as having sinister power, as a kind of negative relic, it reveals something of the writer's life and mind, but more often than in most other cases, and for more obviously compelling reasons, the authorship remains anonymous or pseudonymous, and it serves as a mirror of the surrounding culture, but often the mirror is a distorting one, a deliberately transgressive adaptation of what the society takes to be holy. Any book of rituals serves as point of contact between sacred texts. Permanent, authoritative repositories of power, 
and their performance, which utilizes this power for specific occasions. The book itself, like a liturgical vessel or a sacred building, is consecrated. When a formula is read from it, the power of the text is enhanced by the sacrality of the book from which it is read. A book of magic may also be consecrated, to confirm the numinous power resident in the physical object. A book of magic is thus significant not only as a source for information about magical practice, generally more reliable than court records, denunciatory treatises and literary accounts, but also as itself a magical object, treasured and closely guarded by its possessors, and condemned to burning by judges in mimicry of the punishment that might await the magicians themselves. This perception of a book of magic as itself a magical object, and therefore a suspect, is seldom so dramatically manifested as in the canonization proceedings for Archbishop Antoninus of Florence, the man, from whom, incidentally, the Malleus Maleficarum derived most of its misogynist tropes. 16 One witness to the sanctity of the Archbishop told how the saint had gone one day to a barber surgeon of Florence named Master Peter to have his hair cut. During the process the prelate began to wonder how a man who read no Latin was able not only to cut hair but also to cure the sick people who came to him. He learned that the barber had obtained a book of surgery from a Cistercian and had learned from it the art of healing. Antoninus asked Peter to bring forth this book and show it to him, the man readily complied. The archbishop recognized that the book was full of incantations and formulas and signs belonging to the wicked magical arts. So one day he went to San Marco for lunch, and when certain members of the city's nobility were with him in the cloister after the meal, he had fire brought in an earthen vessel, and he set fire to the book. Immediately the air was so darkened that the citizens were afraid, and clung to the archbishop. He comforted them, saying that when the book was fully burned this darkening and clouding of the air would cease, as indeed happened. Then, calling these citizens and Master Peter about him, he explained that the book contained incantations, and that at some point a mass had been celebrated over it for conjuring and summoning demons, so that wherever the book was, a multitude of demons resided there. The burning thus served as an exorcism, the very pages seemed quite literally infected by demons, who needed to be banished. Once this was accomplished, Antoninus admonished Peter to find some other means for healing the sick, the man obeyed this admonition, and the canonization proceedings assure us that God did not allow his family to go lacking. The notion that demons could infest a book appears elsewhere, Michael Scott told of a magical book inhabited by spirits who call out when the book is opened, what do you want? What do you seek? What do you order? Say what you want and it shall be done forthwith. 17 The theme admits at least two interpretations. One might see it as a way of symbolizing the ubiquity of malign spirits, their eagerness to seize any opportunity for mischief and their dense concentration in those places and objects seen as special occasions of sin. Beyond this, it can express obsessive anxiety about the book itself as an object invested with a kind of negative sacrality, something taboo, a source of spiritual and psychological contagion. The difference is not that the first interpretation is cultural and the second psychological, both interpretations function on both levels, relating the concerns of individual observers to the shared perceptions of the society. But the first interpretation places greater weight on the theological assumption that malevolent forces are secretly present in the world, an objective assumption in the sense that it is widely diffused within the culture, eliciting and appealing to a diversity of personal concerns and anxieties.